babes. Welcome to Coffee and Tequila, the show for people who love stories and love storytelling. Where you get a morning show on Mondays and a late show on Fridays. Unless I drop the ball on that one. I do apologize. No excuses. I just dropped the ball on it. Ran behind on my studies. Um, But we're here. We're ready to go. We're excited. My name is Zach and as always this episode of Coffee and Tequila is kindly being sponsored by Helix Sleep. And I'll let you know a little bit more about them a little bit later, but... First, just quick note that my contacts are killing me and my eyes are so dry. I put eye drops in. I've tried to moisten the contacts. It's not seeming to work. I just need a new pair of contacts, but I need them in to read my notes today. So, and this is my second recording in a row. So, we are going to soldier through it and, and <laughs> hopefully I can make it through the whole recording without having to take my contacts out because otherwise my laptop is going to be like here and it's just. Sometimes I wear one contact and I'll just be like, I do that a lot. I read like that a lot. But um, yeah, we're going to make it through it. Okay. So we are here to cover the Amityville Horror Part 2. This is the Amityville Horror section, the actual book, the Amityville Horror by Jay Anson. This is this is the most famous ghost story in American history. So we're going we're gonna to cover that. But first, just a quick refresher on where we came from for the last episode, right? In November 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed all six of his family members, four siblings and two parents. The family all appeared to be sleeping on their stomachs at the time of the murders, but there are some indications in positioning and autopsy that a couple of them had probably woken up. Still, no neighbors reported hearing any of the eight gunshots, and none of the family members tried to escape, so this remains the biggest mystery. Now, if you also remember, during the trial of Ronald DeFeo Jr., they were really pushing this insanity defense. They they knew that there was no way to get him off without like acting like he was insane, right? He didn't even really commit to it, but he did come up with the story that a pair of black hands handed him a rifle and that he went room to room and shot everybody, and he was possessed by a demon, and there was demonic possession, and he just couldn't stop himself, right? Um, again, he like really didn't commit to this story. So if you if you look up the case, it's very easy to figure out that it was it was just a story that was kind of going with his insanity defense. He was trying to get put in to some sort of institution where he'd get out after a couple of years probably, and then be free to like inherit everything that he was supposed to inherit from the estate and the life insurance and all of that. That did not pan out for him because he got six consecutive life sentences. So, and he died in prison in 2021. But the murders of the DeFeo family is really what kicked off all of all of what was to come from from 1975 until until today. Um, there are countless movies, books, m- various media. There are countless movies, books, podcast episodes, documentaries, all based on the Amityville Horror. And whether this was a real haunting or it was a hoax. When I finished my notes, I really wanted to watch the original movie to see how it kind of held up. Because I haven't watched it in a while. Put it in. It was okay. It wasn't that great. Um <laughs> It wasn't very scary. The The book actually scared me a lot more, and I think it was because I was reading it at night, but it was still really creepy. Um, but the movie's got James Brolin, super hot in this movie, uh, Margot Kidder, icon. So it's got it's got its moments, and the house looks very much similar to the, the actual house in real life. I think they even wanted to film at the actual house, and, and Midvale said, hell no. So they filmed at a house that looked really similar in, in Toms River, New Jersey. And after I watched the first one, I, the, the other two, uh, part two in Midvale, 3d we're both on hbo max so i watched both of those and <laughs> we've got Lori laughlin and amityville 3d i completely forgot about that and then there's like an incest storyline with with the 
the Montelli family or Monterey, whatever the hell their family name is. It's supposed to be the DeFeo family, but uh, there's like an incest storyline between the brother and the sister. It's really fucking weird, man. But we're going to be talking about the the Lutz family today and the, and the Amityville Horror by Jay Anson. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now it's time to tell y'all a little bit about our sponsor for today's episode, Helix Sleep. Helix is a premium mattress and a box company that makes beds to fit your unique sleep style. Helix knows that everybody is different and everybody has their own unique needs, and so they've made a sleep quiz that'll match you with your perfect mattress based on your needs. I am an all-over sleeper. Alistair is more of a side sleeper. He likes a firm mattress. I like, uh, you know, more medium. We took the quiz together and we got the Midnight Mattress. And one of the best parts about Helix is that they deliver the mattress right to your door for free. It comes rolled up in a box and is super easy to set up yourself. And if it makes you nervous to buy something online that you haven't tried, Helix has a 100 night sleep trial so you get more than 3 months to make sure that you absolutely love it. And if you don't, They'll pick it up for you and you'll get a full refund. Now, if you're somebody you know is in the market for a new mattress and you think that Helix sounds right for you, you can go to helixsleep.com slash tequila and you can get up to $200 off of your mattress and two free pillows. Woo! My goodness, take a drink of water now, okay? How many of y'all have actually read The Amityville Horror, the book by Jay Henson? It's, it's, it says, The Amityville Horror, A True Story. So we're going to get into the true story part, right? So in 1975, about a year after the DeFeo murders, uh, a new family moved into the house. It's the Lutz family. So George Lutz is 28 years old, and he owns a land surveying business that had been passed down to him from two generations, right? It's been in his family for two generations. And his wife is named Kathy. She's 30, and she's got three kids from a previous marriage. Danny is nine, Christopher is seven, and Missy is four. George and Kathy got married in July of that same year, 1975, and they they both had a place. They each had a place, but they wanted you know a place together to, to grow their family. So they they start looking around. Um, this is this is in November of 1975, by the way. So a couple months later, and so they're looking around. Their budget was actually between thirty and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> and this is always how it goes, right? This is the house hunters formula. Is that uh, your budget's between thirty and fifty thousand dollars, and your real estate your real estate agent take you to see a, a an eighty thousand dollar home? So the realtor has them meet her at one twelve Ocean Avenue. So they show up, and it's this massive house, right? And the real estate agent goes, "I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, but I wanted to show you how the other half lives." <laughs> so George and Kathy are are you know they're they're like middle class, they're lower middle class, right? They're like they're making they're getting by. Um, they definitely cannot afford to live on Ocean Avenue. These houses are big houses. They're right on the water. Now, 112 Ocean Avenue is massive. This is a six-bedroom house. I think it's three and a half bathrooms. It's got a, a, much more room than they would ever need, right? And it's sitting at about $80,000, and that today is about $430,000. So it was a bargain for the time, and guess why? It's because you know, there's a family of six that were murdered in there the year before. So the realtor is showing them this house. They fall in love with it. They're like, oh, just it's, it's perfect, right? It's perfect for a family of five. We're going to grow. There's room to grow here. It's high hopes. You know, there's a sign that says high hopes in the front yard. Like, it's perfect. It's $80,000. Maybe something is wrong with it. So they go around. They're looking at it, looking at all those rooms in the, in the corners of the ceilings and everything. And everything seems A-OK. And then the realtor brings up, hey, well, actually, the reason this house is $80,000 and is super cheap because there was a family of six that were murdered here last year. George Lutz notes that the windows of the houses 
of all of the neighbors that face the 112 Ocean Avenue, all of their blinds are closed. Almost like they just can't bear to look at this house. And so they pause for a moment, but they ultimately come to the decision that, you know, it was an unfortunate situation and it was a tragedy, but this house, you know, is going to be bought by somebody and it might as well be them. The house literally has so much space that the kids don't even take up every bedroom. I don't know why, because there's a bedroom for every kid, but both of the boys share a bedroom. The girl gets her own bedroom. And then they have extra rooms, so they have a playroom. Kathy gets her own sewing room. George and Kathy are going to get a dressing room. Going from middle class to living the high life. This is why I need to be making a bunch of money, because I know I would fall for shit like this. They move in about a month later on December 18th, and that first day they have a priest come in, Father Mancuso, to come in and bless the house. It is a, This is a guy who... They kind of know he's not really their pastor. Um, he counseled George a little bit before Kathy and George got married. And immediately on day one, this the haunting really kicks off. Even before Father Mancuso goes to the house, he's having this weird feeling about it. Like in his gut, he's like, uh, something feels off about this. I don't know how I feel about this. He kind of talks to his other priest buddies and they're all like, maybe you shouldn't go to it. Maybe you should trust your gut and not go to this house. Um, but he goes anyway. He immediately begins blessing the house when he gets in. He has his holy water and he's kind of flicking it all over the place and on the first flick the very first flick there is a disembodied voice right behind him that says get out it startles him he turns around and there's nobody there right he finishes blessing the house and he doesn't tell the lutzes about about hearing this voice he kind of like questions it to himself but he's pretty sure of his own sanity so he knows that he did hear that the lutzes ask him to stay for dinner but he's got this really bad feeling so father mancuso leaves and whatever was in the house follows him he gets like these really dark circles under his eyes and then when he's driving home back to the rectory uh the the hood on his car flips up while he's on the highway and smashes the windshield his his door just completely flies open while he's driving and he pulls over really fast and it's a really dangerous situation. The Lutzes also have a dog named Harry and Harry is also immediately sensing the badness in this house. He is barking. He, they keep him... They keep this damn dog. This is, to them, this is an outside dog. I freaking hate it when people just have an outside dog. That doesn't make any sense to me. I've never been able to understand it. Some people have explained it to me that, you know, maybe living on a farm or something, they have to have outside animals to protect all the chickens and stuff like that. But this is not an outside. This is, they're not on a farm. They're on a little piece of land, very close to their neighbors. Bring your fucking dog inside. But they keep their dog kind of tied up on this on this lead. It's like a, it's like a chain um, so that he doesn't run away. But he, like, almost strangles himself. He, like, gets over the fence, and he's, like, strangling himself on this on this chain. And so they bring the chain in and shorten the, shorten the lead a little bit so that he can't strangle himself and jump over the fence. But he's, like, trying to get out of this fucking house. He's trying to get away from here. On the first night and every night after, George wakes up at 3.15 a.m. The first night that he wakes up at 3.15 a.m., he's waking up to a banging on the front door, and he goes and checks, and it, there's... This banging goes throughout the house, and he follows this banging out to the boathouse, and he out in the boathouse, he can see, looking out the window, he sees a shadow move behind the boathouse, and so he thinks it's a person, and Harry's barking at it, and it's just really creepy. Um, he goes, there's, he doesn't find anybody. It was just a random shadow that like went behind the boathouse, whether that was somebody breaking into their house or a ghosty spirit. I don't want to see no shadows, nowhere, 
outside, creeping around my place. George is also always freezing. The house is always cold, and it's not just him that feels it, but he feels it the most intensely. So he's always, like, messing with the fireplace, always messing with the thermostat, trying to, you know, crank it up. Sometimes they have it up to, like, 80-something degrees, and they still feel freezing. George and Kathy are starting to irritate each other. They're getting on each other's nerves, and the kids are getting on their nerves. Now, the kids' playroom is on the third floor. It's the room that has the quarter round, you know, evil eyes. Um, and they're up there playing one day, and they accidentally crack one of the windows, and Kathy and George fly into a rage, and they start beating these kids with wooden spoons and with a, with a strap, and they, they really beat them, like, pretty hard. Um, hard enough that they feel really bad about it afterwards, and the kids are, like, kind of skittish around them a little bit. Now, all of this is just in week one. Now, starting in week two, Kathy can feel a maternal presence every time she's in the kitchen. She, she'll be in there, and then she'll start uh, uh, the smell of perfume. She describes it as cheap perfume, but if they're indicating that this is, you know, Louise DeFeo, she would not have cheap perfume. This was an expensive lady. Um, but the the smell of perfume would waft into the room, and Kathy would feel this maternal presence and then feel like a hand on her hand or on her arm or on her shoulder. You know, something really comforting. Every toilet bowl in the house turns black, and they just can't explain it. Kathy, like, scrubs her hardest and can't get rid of the black. They find that in the sewing room, there are hundreds of flies covering the inside of the window. And now, mind you, it is, it is winter in in New York. So all of the flies do not make sense and they should not be there. We also got to note that everybody in the house, everybody who comes into the house, they all feel a really bad feeling about the sewing room. So much so that they keep the door closed all the time just because they get, I don't, I don't know, have you ever been in your house and you feel a really bad feeling coming from a room that has a door open and you're walking by it and you just feel the urge to like close it? Definitely, I, at the last house, definitely had the feeling about our, our studio back there. At random times, wafting through the house will be a really like disgusting smell and Kathy kind of describes it as like a dead rat and then it'll just go away and everything will smell fine. All of the people in town are really weird about this house too, but we do have a couple instances where yeah, people act really weird about the house. Like the boys bring home a, a, another little boy that used to play with one of the DeFeo boys uh, and he goes into the house, he plays for a little bit and then he like gets the feeling that he needs to leave and so he leaves, never comes back to the house again. There's also a random man that like shows up at the Lutz door and he, he's carrying a six pack of beer and he says, hey, I'm a neighbor and I'm here to welcome you to the neighborhood. All the neighbors want to welcome you to the neighborhood we all want to come in and have a like a little party to welcome you um he come he goes in george invites him in and he goes and talks with them for a little bit in the kitchen he's kind of looking around and it's really awkward and then he says well i'm going and he holds up the beer and he says i brought it i'll take it with me he leaves the house and they like never see him again right so if he was a neighbor it's anybody's guess probably not another one of the nights that george wakes up at 3 15 a.m he goes downstairs and finds that the front door is literally wide open and hanging from a single hinge and what's really weird about it is that it seems like the door was pried open with a crowbar is what it's described but not from the outside like somebody trying to get into the house like somebody trying to break in it seems like somebody was trying to get out. George has a repairman come out, and the repairman remarks that the DeFeos used to have him come out all the time as well, just to fix the, because the, the same would happen as at the front door, it would happen to the door to the boathouse. The family all starts sleeping on their stomachs, except for George Lutz, and I guess, I guess George Lutz is the Ronnie DeFeo of this situation, because he, they, a lot of times in this book remark that George, I don't know, George will go to different bars or go to different places, and people who knew Ronnie DeFeo will see him and be like, uh, you remind me of somebody, somebody who's gone, somebody who's away. Like, really cryptic like that, but, like, we all know who he's talking about. George also keeps going to this bar called The Witch's Brew, and The Witch's Brew wasn't a bar at the time, so I'm wondering if they're talking about Henry's Bar, maybe just didn't want to name it. Um, 
But all the family, yeah, they start sleeping on their stomachs, and they've never done that before. Missy, the the youngest girl, starts asking if angels can talk, because I guess she's hearing something. She's hearing a presence talk to her. Chris and Danny are fist fighting. They keep fighting each other, and Kathy says that this has never happened before, that the boys have always gotten along. Kathy finds one of their crucifixes upside down. Now, this entire book is, like, going in and out of the Lutz's story and, like, swapping with Father Mancuso's story. Because remember, Father Mancuso was, like basically brought something with him when he left the house and so we keep going back to father mancuso and he's just it's the entire book is just describing father mancuso as how sick he is and he's just so sick and he wants to help the family but he can't go back to the house and he won't go back to the house and he tries to call the lutzes and every time he tries to call the the phone is just really crackly and staticky and they can't really hear each other and he keeps trying to urge the lutzes to move out of the house they should leave the house but Father Mancuso won't go help them. Kathy also starts waking up during the night, screaming different things about, about the DeFeo case. So one night she wakes up screaming, she was shot in the head, she was shot in the head. And they make it a point that, like, how would Kathy know that if if she weren't experiencing it and seeing it in her dreams? And, you know, she's feeling that presence. But I don't think Louise DeFeo was shot in the head. I think she was shot twice in the back. So, I don't know. Now, remember that maternal presence that was in the kitchen that Kathy felt a couple times? Well, now it starts to get a little bit aggressive. So, she smells the smell of perfume, and she feels that maternal feel, and it wraps around. It's like hands that are behind her. They wrap around her, her waist, and at first it's feeling a little bit maternal, and then it feels like she gets kind of like the hair stand up on her arms, and she's like a little bit freaked out, so she pr tries to pull away, and the grip around her waist just tightens. And whoever's behind her is like tightening and holding her tight and she can't get away and she's having trouble breathing. Um, and it's just, it's this really aggressive moment and then she finally pulls away. But she's like really scared to tell her George about this because she doesn't want to, I don't know, she, do, she nobody really wants to talk to each other but then they do talk to each other but then they keep saying, oh, they'll have a conversation about stuff that's going on and then they'll be like, oh no, I don't want to talk to, I don't want to talk to George, I don't want to talk to Kathy, I don't want to, I don't want to worry them. Kathy's brother is named Jimmy and the day after Christmas is Jimmy's wedding. I don't know who plans a wedding for the day after Christmas but Jimmy does, I guess. George the entire day is really sick with diarrhea and he He's just not feeling good, but he gets up, he gets ready, he gets showered, he shaves, and up until now, he has not, like, showered or shaved at all. So he finally gets up, showers, shaves, and shits, I guess. Uh, and Jimmy comes over, and Jimmy's got $1,500, like, the remaining balance of what he needs to pay the caterer. And so he brings it in, like, a, a an envelope and keeps it in his pocket. And they're all talking. Jimmy comes over to pick up the, the Lutz family because he's going to take them to the venue. And when they're leaving, he's feeling his pockets and he can't find the $1,500 and the $1,500 is gone. And he kind of freaks out a little bit because that he had to drain his bank account for this. They look high and low throughout this house and they cannot find it. I don't know. I think... <laughs> I think it's a good chance that George probably took it. And I say this because George is constantly talking about money in this. He's always talking about how this might not have been the best idea for them to buy this house because I guess land surveyors aren't aren't like plentiful in Amityville because Amityville property taxes are, you know, sky high, so people aren't really developing in Amityville and so they don't really need a land surveyor and you know, he's having trouble like coming up with money to like I don't know, they're not here for very long, but he's already like really struggling with this. If you're gonna struggle this much with a house that you just moved into and like 
wondering how you're going to pay for it. Maybe you just shouldn't have bought the house. At the wedding, though, the caterer wants to be paid, right? And so Jimmy can't afford it all. And, um, they they go through all of the all of the cards and everything that people have been giving them for wedding gifts, and they take all of the cash. And it's about five hundred dollars. They give it to the caterer. There's about a thousand dollars remaining on a balance. So George writes two checks, two different checks to two different accounts. And the weekend's coming up, so he gives the checks, and he knows that one of them is going to bounce. So he's got to make sure to get to the bank before Monday, so that the when the caterer tries to cash this check that it doesn't bounce. Um, and if George did take the money, I guess he would make about $500, right? Because he only gave a thousand and he would still make 500 back. I don't know. It's uh, no evidence that he did take it though. Kathy's aunt Teresa also comes by and aunt Teresa is, is exactly how she sounds. She is a former nun and she comes into the house and immediately leaves because she said something bad is there. So she's not going to stick around. Everybody who comes to the house is immediately like, Oh, this house is bad. Turn around, leave. One day, George and Kathy are in the basement and they're kind of like fiddling around a little bit in, in this closet. And like they're, they've got, I think they've got boxes and one of the boxes like falls over and hits some, some of the wood paneling on, on the closet wall and the closet wall kind of like pushes out. And so they're like, Whoa, well, never seen that room before we didn't know that room was there and they push the paneling and inside is is this room that's painted red right um and they're really freaked out about this they're like well this isn't on any of the floor plans this red room wasn't advertised we didn't even know it was here who built it was it built with the house or was it built by the defeos like this is the red room is a big question mark this one was kind of weird. It's a porcelain lion that they have that's next to the fireplace. It bites George. He's like walking by it and falls over it. And then later on when they're checking his ankle, his ankle's a little bit swollen. And then Kathy sees like huge bite marks from this fucking lion. In the movie, the big climax is that Kathy goes to the library and does the little research thing where she has to research what's going on with the house and what the history of the house is. But in the book, I was surprised that it's George who does that. George goes to the library and he's kind of like looking things up and goes to the historical society and tries to figure out like who built this room in this house right he learns that native americans had used the land for the sick and dying but they didn't bury the dead there because the land was infested with demons said to be um, there was also a man named john ketchum who was exiled from salem because he practiced witchcraft and practiced devil worship on the property he continued to practice devil worship on on the property of 112 ocean avenue that was all week two now <laughs> it's like not a single day that goes by without this like a, a bunch of like big noises or like doors flying off their hinges or or big presences you know and like people grabbing you and holding you by the waist in the kitchen i'm just say let's leave by week two now week two is done we're going into week three i think it's time to go already but we go into week three and george is convinced that there's defeo money like hidden in the house and hidden in the boathouse specifically right i think he gets this idea that because Ronald DeFeo killed his family over over money, that there's money hidden somewhere. So he's like looking for it. He's pretty sure it's in the boathouse. He looks in the boathouse, can't find the money. We flash back to the priest and we gotta really make the note that this whole like book is very pro-Catholicism, right? We got a lot of messaging uh, about about Catholicism here and how the, being a faithful Catholic will lead you to lead you to victory. Um, the priest is experiencing stigmata. He's got these blisters on his on the palms of his hands and there's they start to bleed and he's like god 
if you're if you're going to make a martyr out of me or something like that, then just let it be for something that I can do for others. Let me be able to help others. It's like, dude, calm down, man. Calm down. This is where it like, gets really annoying. Kathy sees a, a, a demonic face in the fireplace, and these now they're starting to come to the conclusion that there's something supernatural. They keep coming to the conclusion that there's something supernatural, and then they run away from that conclusion. And then they come back to the supernatural, and then they run away again. She says to George, the house, what, do you think the house is haunted? And George is like, no, the house is not haunted. That's illogical. There's got to be a logical explanation for it. Kathy's like, well, the house could be haunted, but you know what? I don't want to go near any spooks. I don't want to near any go near any ghosts and demons. I'm not ready for that, so I, I'm going to go with you, George. The house is not haunted. Um, and then the garage door gets ripped off of its fucking frame, and George is like, oh my golly, what's going on here? Like, man, maybe the house is haunted, but no, it couldn't be haunted. There's got to be a logical explanation. There's one night where they finally get to have dinner peacefully as a family, and it seems like a really nice night. They bring Harry in for once. They keep... it. I keep thinking that this is winter in New York and it's fucking cold outside and they have this dog chained up outside in a little compartment for him and it's just like why do you even have a dog if they're going to do that to it but like this is a nice night so they bring Harry inside and Harry's playing with the kids and it's you know it's really nice um they also remark that Harry's like really lethargic and acting sick and so George is talking about taking him to the vet it's like of course he's fucking sick it's New York in winter and he's out fucking side again Justice for Harry. Um, but the kids go to bed and George and Kathy stay up because they want to see if anything's going to happen with the house, right? They're questioning whether it's haunted or not. So they want to see if there's anything that's going to happen. And they're like, by like 10 o'clock, they're like, oh, I don't think anything's going to happen. So maybe we'll go to bed. They start turning the lights off and heading upstairs. And as they get to the stairs, Kathy turns around and she just screams. George turns and looks towards uh, where Kathy's screaming at, and they both see a pair of glowing red eyes looking in at them from the darkness of outside, looking inside, and the eyes turn and take off, and so they take off outside. George takes off outside and can't find anything. He doesn't find anybody, he doesn't find any animals, nothing, but in the snow, like frozen into the snow because it's cold again, there are really massive, like, pig tracks, like a pig was walking out there. Um, now, this is relevant because Missy, her imaginary friend, she's been talking to this imaginary friend this whole time. She's been asking if angels can talk, saying that maybe this imaginary friend's an angel. And she finally reveals that her imaginary friend is a pig named Jody. And Jody keeps telling her that it's going to all be over soon. Don't worry. It's all going to be over soon. Another night, George wakes up again at 3.15 a.m. and hears a marching band downstairs just a full marching band sounding like 60 people are down there and he runs down there and immediately the marching band sounds all cease there's there's no sound there's nobody down there nothing um he goes back upstairs and kathy is floating off of the bed she's like levitating over the bed and levitating towards the window and so he grabs her and pulls her down and she wakes up and doesn't know what happened he said oh nothing nothing happened again like communicate with each other tell you tell your wife hey you was just floating i need you to can you tell me why you were floating did you dream something what is happening here? Maybe the house is haunted if you're floating through the air. The family is still here. I don't know. Maybe after Kathy is floating, we get out. But maybe, I don't know. They got all their money tied up in this house. I guess they just cannot leave. But uh, in week four, George finds a well under the house's foundation. And uh, so George has an employee named Eric. 
And Eric has a girlfriend named Francine. And Francine, he's talking to Francine because Francine's supposed to be like a medium. And so he talks to Francine about what's going on at the house. And Francine says that spirits are coming from a well. He doesn't tell her about the well, but she says spirits are coming from a well and that they need to cover it. And that because the well, even if it has a crack in it, that spirits can get through. And so all the spirits are coming from this well. George like does not know what to do at this point. So he has Francine, he invites Francine and, and Eric to come over to the house so that Francine can kind of walk around and like get a sense of what's going odd he talks to father mancuso about this and father mancuso acts a little bit salty and he's like wait you're consulting a, a medium you're not going to consult your priest your pastor mm, i don't know how i feel about that but father mancuso refuses to go to the house he just will not go to this house he just keeps saying leave you should just leave the house which is not a bad it's not a bad idea actually you know but like father mancuso if you're not going to help just like step back and let francine come in Francine comes to the house and tells everybody that she was born with a Venetian veil, and that's how she can sense everything. And Venetian veil is like, I guess, some skin, like really thin skin that's uh, born o over some babies. When they're when they're born, they have it, um, and it just has to be removed really quick. And um, if you're if you're, I guess the the myth goes that if you're if you're born with a Venetian veil, that you'll receive a little bit of clairvoyance. So she tells them that the house was built over a Native American burial ground, and at one point she's upstairs and she's like. Feeling really uncomfortable, she's kind of like feeling lightheaded, and she starts talking in this like low, masculine man's voice, and, and George realizes that he recognizes that voice, and it's the voice of Father Mancuso, and uh, Francine needs to leave, Francine and Eric leave, and Eric tells George later that Francine just felt awful about that house, that there's something really bad in that house, and that she will never return to that house again. Now, you remember Kathy's brother, Jimmy. Jimmy, who got married the day after Christmas. Yeah. So, he comes back with his new bride, Carrie. They come back from their honeymoon, and they stay with the Lutzes for a night. Um, this, this, I remember this scene from reading the book when I was a kid, and this, like, scared the shit out of me. Um, so, Jimmy and Carrie come to stay with the Lutzes, and they stay in Missy's room. And Missy is going to stay in the dressing room, right? She's going to stay on the couch in the dressing room. And so, they're sleeping in, in Missy's room one night, and... Then Carrie just starts screaming and crying, and George says, oh my gosh, not they can't, this can't happen to them, and he comes running in there, and Jimmy's holding Carrie, and Carrie's like sobbing uncontrollably, they flip on the light, and Carrie says, I, I felt a tug on my foot, I felt something touch my foot, and I looked over, and there was a little dead boy on the, on the foot of the bed, and he was looking at me, and he was asking me for help, and... Oh, I got goosebumps right now. That's fucking scary, man. Imagine at night looking to the foot of your bed and seeing a little dead boy sitting there. Ugh, creepy. They look at the foot of the bed and there's there's like indentations like somebody, a little boy was, was there. So, but uh, Jimmy's like, oh, you were just dreaming, Carrie. You were just dreaming. And Carrie's like, I know what I saw. Don't guess like me, motherfucker. George and Kathy are at their wits freaking end. Instead of leaving the house, they, they've put money into it. So they have decided they're going to stay. So they try to bless the house themselves, but are overcome by just a jumble of voices. It was what it's described as just a bunch of voices in their ears and it's trying to stop them from, from blessing the house um a green goo starts leaking from the walls also like a gelatin it's like it's described like green jello starts leaking from the walls um danny at one point is it's got a window open and he's like he has his hands on the window ledge and the window just slams shut onto his hands like flattens his hands and george has to take him to the hospital and it, like breaks one of his hands george is losing it he's had it he nails all of the windows shut but that doesn't do anything because the next morning when they wake up they wake up to 
all of the windows open. There's a storm outside, and so it's 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 raining all throughout the house. The rain is getting all in the house. So they decide it's time to go. They need to go. They need to leave. George has been trying to get Kathy to leave, and Kathy just won't leave. He keeps trying to get her to go to her mom's house. She says, nope, she's going to stay, or, or that she needs to clean the house, or she, I don't know. She comes up with all these damn excuses. Um, but finally, George decides that his family needs to leave, and so there's a big storm one night, and they try to leave during it, and the, 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 the van just won't work. The van refuses to work, um, so they all run, go running back inside, and George is like, damn it, this house just won't let us leave. Mind you, if you look at these pictures of this house, this house is super close to all of the neighbors. Walk across the damn yard, knock on a door, and ask to use their phone. Call your call your mama, call somebody, ask somebody to come pick you up. There is There are options. You're not in the middle of like the desert landscape, you know? You have... You have people around you to help you um but no they go inside the house they uh, send they send the boys back up to their room which was really weird um at this point like they're all terrified and they're all you know they they know something is happening and they're scared to even go to sleep or be alone but they send the boys back to their room george lays down and and tries to sleep kathy and missy are in the bed and george becomes paralyzed he falls he dozes off and he becomes paralyzed with uh it's like sleep paralysis is what it's described as actually um but he's like paralyzed and he hears like drawers slamming opening and closing the doors slamming opening and closing there's the the beds up above him are like uh there i don't know he can hear the beds like moving across the floor the the boys beds and but he like can't move and he can't and kathy and missy are not waking up he's looking over to them and they're not waking up finally he just like can't do anything except doze off and go to sleep so he goes to sleep and the boys come and wake him up the very next morning and as they're waking him up he cannot he can't get up he still can't get up off the bed and they're like um dad like our beds were floating there was a there was a man there was a shadow man who was trying to get us there was a, just this shadow that was trying to grab us let's make a note that harry is inside during this and so harry's sleeping in the in the hallway and immediately jumps up and starts barking at the stairs going up to the third floor um as the boys are telling him telling george about about their beds flying up and down and so um Harry's barking like crazy and so like really freaking. So George finally uses all of his might and he just pulls himself out of the bed. He finally fucking jumps up and he takes off running to the stairs and he looks up the stairs and he sees this this white figure with this you know this white hood and the the figure points at them and starts to come down at them right. And so George takes the damn takes the kids. He takes Kathy and Missy. He has the, he has the boys carry Missy and he carries Kathy, and they take off out of this fucking house. They they take off out of the house. They get in the van. The van is working, I guess, and they take off and escape. Now, as they're leaving, they also see that the door again is ripped off the hinges, and they take off. They don't take anything with them. They go straight to Kathy's mother's house and. They think they're safe there. But in the epilogue of the book, they make a note that they are not, in fact, safe. That the activity follows them there, too. So, they are just haunted, I guess. I don't know. They were in the house for 28 days. They left. They didn't take anything with them. No clothes. No nothing. So, what happened after the Lutzes left 112 Ocean Avenue? Once the Lutzes leave, they immediately start contacting reporters, paranormal investigators, and it seems like they're already trying to piece together a public story. They contact a paranormal investigator and self-proclaimed vampirologist, Stephen Kaplan. 
Kaplan says that he won't charge to do the investigation, but if he finds that they are lying and this is a hoax, he will let the public know. The Lutzes immediately ghost Kaplan, no pun intended. They say it's because of the vampireologist title, but Stephen Kaplan believes it was because they didn't want their plan thwarted. At the time, there's this news reporter, Laura DiDio. Laura, oh, I really, really trust her, and I really feel like just listening to her, I trust her. Um, she was a, a young reporter at the time. She was covering this case. She had kind of an interest in the supernatural because she had a psychic mother. And so that really sparked her interest in the supernatural. And she kind of covered cases and stories that were a little bit more supernatural leaning. But she does feel really level-headed to me. And I could be like completely fooled if she's not. But I think she's pretty level-headed. She uses reason over emotion a lot. When I hear her explain different things, she if you if you listen to podcast interviews, Ever. There's a, or there's a documentary called My Innovative Horror that's all about Danny Lutz um, as an adult talking about all of this and she's in it and she you know she's talked about that and she's like do I believe it was haunted I don't know I do believe that like they the kids are not telling lies but was it haunted I don't really know. Laura DiDio sets up this paranormal investigation that's going to happen this one night. She brings her, her news crew. Uh, they contact Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and Lorraine Warren contact other mediums and psychics that they know, and they assemble this group that's going to come and have this slumber party at the house. They're going to stay overnight at 112 Ocean Avenue. Ed and Lorraine Warren, the famous Ed and Lorraine Warren. All the Conjuring movies are based off of them. And Ed and Lorraine Warren come in, and this is like early in Ed and Lorraine Warren's careers. As do, like doing this, this is before all of the books and movies and everything. You know, this wasn't, they weren't really like Ed and Lorraine Warren yet. You know, they were still here trying to help people. Now, Lorraine Warren felt like what was happening in the house, she did experience something in the house. And I've seen plenty of interviews with her that say, she says, I, I was there and I said, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get because she was experiencing overwhelming senses of, of negative energy. And she says that the ghosts, it wasn't being haunted by ghosts of the DeFeos, but it was a demonic entity that was feeding off of the recent negative energy that had happened the year prior when the DeFeos had, had been murdered. And they're all there in this house, you know, performing like a seance and they're walking around and they have all these cameras set up that are supposed to take pictures if there's like any movement or any motion or anything like that. And there's one picture that really is terrifying to look at, right? Um, and it's on the second floor and it's facing a doorway and uh, I guess the camera had gone off and when they developed it, they found the face of a little boy. It looks like one of the DeFeo children with glowing eyes just like peering out of the doorway at the camera. And it's like a black and white photo. So like the whole picture just looks really, really creepy. That I like really have not found an answer on. I guess there's a guy that was there during this whole thing that had glasses and maybe he could have been on his knees like looking out or if they were like trying to further perpetuate a hoax or if that was just an accident and he accidentally was captured on camera and the you know the flash just hit the glasses at the at the you know the right spot and it made it look like the glasses were or the glasses were glowing eyes i don't know but th that picture is super creepy to me it looks like a ghost to me it looks like one of the DeVeo boys i see one of the DeVeo boys laura didio does not see one of the DeVeo boys she says it doesn't look like that to her but I think it looks like one of the DeFeo boys. And listen, I'm more leaning towards this whole thing being a hoax, but that, that one picture, I'm like, hmm, that could be something. Because I think that, especially, especially 
after a tragedy like the murder of the DeFeos, like residual energy stays in a place. I do fully believe that. And I think ghosts are residual energy that could be really negative. It could be really positive. I don't know, just some sort of strong energy that was left behind in the way that the DeFeos were murdered. There had to have been energy left behind. So I believe that there had to have been spirits or something there. There was something there. Um, and do I believe that the Lutzes experienced anything? Probably. They probably did. Um, do I believe that all of this stuff in this book was happening? No. No, I do not. I think it's, it's even been admitted a little bit by the Lutzes that there were a lot of liberties taken in the story, right? Um, William Weber, again, uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, he came out and he claimed that the Lutzes and him got together while the whole trial was going on with Ronnie and they were trying to come up with Ronnie's uh, insanity defense and the Lutzes and William Weber were coming up with a story for a book that they could do for based on based on like a horror story for this house right they were concocting a horror story that would kind of help out during the trial and would also like benefit the Lutzes later on and so the Lutzes were going to get you know a certain percentage Ronnie DeFeo would have gotten a percentage and William Weber would have gotten a percentage, but the Lutzes didn't want to give Ronnie DeFeo a percentage, and so they backed out, and they went to Jay Anson. And Jay Anson, they, they sat with him for like 40 hours and talked to him and came up with all these stories. But there's like this story that the Lutzes uh, sat with William Weber over a glass of wine, and they all got wine drunk and came up with all of these horror stories. And the next year, in 1977, Jay Anson puts out this book, The Amityville Horror, and the Lutzes get 50% of the of the profits from that. And they, it does seem like they concocted this hoax to make money. They knew they were going to make money off of this. Um, they were going to get a book deal, a movie deal. You know, it seems, it's weird that they would, they would. I don't know. They, they did benefit from it, but at the same time, they didn't really benefit from this, but it was like something that was unforeseen, right? Is that all of the neighbor, all of the people who moved into that house afterwards, like a couple of them sued the Lutzes because the house became like this big tourist attraction now, right? Everybody's going to this house. They all want to see the most haunted house in America. Um, and then the Lutzes are being sued by the cop here over here and they're being sued by somebody else over here you know like they're they're getting hit with lawsuits left and right i think george lutz said that off the book they made about a hundred thousand dollars they might have made like a hundred thousand dollars off of off the, the movie you know so they did make money but they were also spending money at a really alarming rate the Lutzes were giving interviews. They wrote a second book. They really publicized their story. You'd think they'd want to forget it all and move on, but no. There's even a sequel written about the Lutzes post-112 Ocean Avenue called Amityville 2, and it shows them moving to California, and they're still being haunted by entities, but they're also being haunted by the press, <laughs> which was the really ironic part, considering all of the interviews and all of the, uh, the, the ways that they are putting themselves out into the press. Back to Stephen Kaplan. After he was dismissed by the Lutzes, he was ready to go and expose them. He felt something fishy. He went after it. He made it his life's mission to debunk the whole damn story. Kaplan writes a counter book called The Amityville Conspiracy, right? And he's going off and giving all these interviews, calling calling it a hoax. He points out that there was no damage matching the extent of that that was reported in the Amityville horror. Uh, the times that they mentioned snow and rain, there wasn't any actual snow or rain. I don't really put any weight onto this because I, I don't know what the weather was, you know, the other day. 
But you know, there's a lot of things in the Amityville Horror that really don't add up. There's no evidence of slime or black toilets or, you know, any of the damage that was that was reported. The famous red room in the basement, when you see it, it didn't look like it's anything demonic. It just looks like a storage, you know, place that's painted red. In the book, it's kind of described as a place, as a room that's being used for, for dog and pig sacrifices. And, you know, it's hinted at that the room, the walls were painted with blood and that's why it's red. I've seen some accounts that say there was a good chance the house was built on a Native American burial ground, but where are the documents to prove that? I don't. I just see speculation and I see like hints at it, like oh well, Native Americans were burying their dead, you know, around this location or on the on you know next to the water. You know, I see things like that, but no. But there's no actual evidence that proves that 112 Ocean Avenue was built on a Native American burial ground. I remember growing up always being like so curious about whether this was a hoax or it was a real thing that happened. And always being like, well, I want to hear what the, what the kids have to say. Uh, Danny, Christopher, and, and Missy, what do they say? Do they, think, do they maintain that it was haunted? Or if we asked them, would they say that it was a hoax? Um... Well, those have been answered. Danny had a documentary called My Animityville Horror where he talks all about it, right? And he seems like a really jaded person. He's really, really kind of tough. I think he and Christopher both had a lot of problems with George. They they both come out and made statements about what happened, and they both say that things did happen in the house. Um but that it was egged on by George because George was super into the occult and had all these books about the occult. Um, and that George was basically a tyrant, even aside from anything supernatural, that George was just really abusive. And so remember at the beginning of the book that when they move into the house, they say that Kathy and George, you know, get really irritated with them and fly off the handle and start beating them with with whips and spoons. And I think that was already happening, you know, pre-moving into the house. I feel like the, they, you know, these especially George, he was an ex-Marine, you know, he was a really tough guy, and I think he was probably pretty abusive to these boys. He was an asshole, and they didn't like him, and Danny didn't like him so much that he even left home when he was a teenager. Danny, when he took off, he, like, he got married, his wife didn't even know about it, his wife was at a video store one day and picked up the Amityville Horror, at, you know, and looked at the back, and it had his name on it, and he's like, is that you? Is, is this you? And Danny comes clean, and he's like, yeah, that's me. Um, during the so Laura DiDio actually produced my Amityville Horror, the documentary, and she had a psychologist come in and talk to Danny. And the psychologist said that like he didn't think that Danny was lying. Um, and so this doesn't mean that it, the house was haunted, but that maybe the things that Danny experienced and that he was re recalling, that his recall was was not a lie, right? That he did remember these things in a specific way, but like, what did he remember? Did he remember his parents overreacting about certain things, or did he actually remember, like, the bed flying off of the ground? Or like, you know, what were those memories? Pretty much all the owners after the Lutz has left have all said that, nothing, you know, there's nothing weird that was happening. There were no ghosts. There was no nothing. But Laura DiDio also, because she's like, I love her. I freaking love her because she's like really kept up with this whole story, like even up till today. She's like updating, you know, she's always updating her information on it. She talked to one of the owners um, in the 2000s and, and asked them, hey, like, do you, I mean, we would like to bring a camera crew or anything to see if, I don't know, just film it, uh, if you guys would be okay with it, but do you guys, have you guys felt anything? Has anything been weird? And they're like, no, nothing's weird. But then they bring up Danny's, um, Laura brings up Danny's name, and upon hearing Danny's name, the the wife, Mrs. D'Antonio, who's living there, she says, oh, but we're not going to ever let Danny step foot, or George step foot in this house. Uh, Danny and George can't step foot in this house because they would bring the the darkness back in. So then 
they're acknowledging that there was a darkness or I don't know. It's, it's all super confusing. I lean more towards it was a hoax. I think George and Kathy Lutz knew they couldn't afford this house. Um, George is talking about in the book, George talks about, well, I'll be able to afford the house if I work from home, right? If I get rid of the office, if I close my office and just work from home, if I, if I do this, if I do that, he's like pulling money together from all different places. I don't think he ever intended to stay more than, more than a month, right? I think they intended to pay for the house for a couple months, um, leave pretty quickly, come up with this story, tell everybody about the story, uh, you know, get people involved and create this, this elaborate hoax that was based off of, you know, really it was based off of the murder, the, the actual true life murders of a family of six, you know, a tragic story. And they're, they're bouncing off the backs of them. And I think, you know, in that respect, it was pretty shitty. Um, I do think it was a hoax. I think there were probably things that they could have experienced because again, residual energy, I believe it. And I believe that house probably has residual energy. Um, but the Amityville Horror, you read the book, and it's a good ghost story. It's pretty good. I guess we have to ask the question why everybody would go along with this so easily. Why everybody were, were so easy to, to believe all of this. And why America would so easily accept this at the time. Um, you know, it, the Amityville Horror is, is a ghost story that has lived on till today. Everybody knows the Amityville Horror. Everybody knows, the, you know, that that title. And <laughs> George isn't even, even <laughs> trademarked the title, Amityville Horror TM. Um but everybody knows, even if you don't know the story, you know the words, the Amityville Horror. So it's something that has lasted. It's a legacy. And I don't think it would have if everybody at the time didn't really latch on to it. Now, the Exorcist had come out a couple years before, and everybody was like super, like they were all clutching their rosaries, and everybody wanted, you know, make sure Jesus is close to you because the devil's trying to get in. The devil's trying to get into our children. The devil's trying to, you know, devil's right around the corner. Anything you could do, the devil could be. I think even in the book, Father Mancuso mentions that this is all happening to the, uh, to the Lutzes because they were involved in transcendental meditation. And I don't think transcendental meditation is bad. That's not devil worship. What are you talking about, Father Mancuso? It was easy for everybody to go along with it and believe it. And also it was just a really good ghost story, you know, um, and it's a ghost story that has this legacy that has inspired all of the other ghost stories. And so, I guess in that respect, it was pretty successful, wouldn't it? I don't know. What do you guys think about the Amityville Horror? Do you think it was a hoax? Do you think it was some... Or do you think it was real? Do you think it's a mix of the two? What do you think? I don't know. Let me know, and I will catch you in the next episode. I think the camera actually turned off, so if you're listening at this point, it, you, you should just be hearing my voice. <laughs> You talk about the devil, and the devil comes to bite you in the ass. That's the lesson of this one right here. I'm going to go grab my rosary and I'm going to clutch it. All right. Bye, guys.